Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Well, Snooker Player Bingo was such a success the first time we did it that we've done it again. Uh, Phil Yates uh, features again, inevitably, because he has more stories than anyone about the players. And uh, we're joined as well by Mark Johnston-Allen, former player now, Master of Ceremonies at various tournaments. If you didn't hear the first edition of this, it's a very simple concept. I've written out a list of 20 Snooker players. I've all got a number from 1 to 20. Phil and Mark uh, each pick a number, and then uh, whatever number corresponds to the player. We have stories about those players, and uh, again, we had a lot of fun doing it, so I hope you enjoy it. Mark, you can, you can go first. Pick a number between 1 and 20. Uh, 17. Number 17 is Marco Fu. OK, well, I'll start on Marco Fu, because Mark's just gone really silent. <laughs> Marco Fu, I think, would definitely get my vote to be the, the nicest guy on the circuit. Yeah. I've never known him complain... No or moan or have any gripes about anybody or anything even when he's lost a, a particularly heartbreaking match he just seems to take it in his stride remember at the Welsh Open once he fought back against Alan McManus from 4-1 down to 4 each potted it was either the black or a re-spotted black to win 5-4 and went in off and I was in the car with him the courtesy car on the way back to the hotel afterwards and I expected him to be very silent and he was perfectly civil as though you know it was just any other day I think he's got that Wonderful temperament, on and off the table. Yeah, he came down the, the Championship League one year, but it was because in, in the winter and it's, it snowed. And well, there were two things about that. One, everyone was miserable about the snow, apart from his wife Shirley, who'd never seen it before from Hong Kong, and she was loving it outside, taking pictures. But then at the end of the night, they weren't quite so uh, thrilled with it because the, if you ever. Most people probably have not been to Cronin Park listening, but it's a long, long drive to get in, really long. And they got stuck halfway up, that didn't be dug out. <laughs> no, he's a, he's a, Marco is a, he's a lovely chap, and um, it may be that that's why he's not won you know, as much as he could have done. Maybe he's too nice, you could argue. He probably is the nicest man in Snooker, isn't he? Yeah. If, you, if there was a, a league table, he'd definitely top it. I yeah. can't think of anything to say about him. He's just mm. so nice, isn't he? Yeah. Smart. You, are, you are right. I've never seen him angry, upset. His match of the World Championship this year against Barry Hawkins just had everything for me. It was one of the best matches I've ever commentated on. It was a good standard, really good uh, fight back, great drama in the end, and uh, yeah, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Of course, he was involved in one of the most extraordinary incidents in snooker. When he won the IBSF World Amateur Championship in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, <laughs> there was one day there in the group phase, one day in the group phase, where it was completely abandoned because they had an infestation of flying insects all over the tables and they couldn't play. You need to get out while you do <laughs> Do you think, though, joking apart, do you think that... Because I, I really rate him. Yes. I think he's a fantastic player, but I think he's underachieved. 
Yeah. Would you, I think, would well, you agree or not? I think you can only measure a player by titles, can't you? Yeah. He's won two ranking events, which you know a lot of players never, never yeah. won, but it's a compliment to him to say that because he is... I mean, he's still top 16 player now, but maybe, I don't know, sometimes he seems to me he gets a bit tired during tournaments, and maybe that's why he hasn't sort of lasted to the end of yes. that many. He burst on the scene, didn't he? When the, was it the Grand Prix? No, he got her up. He got her yeah. up, was it? Yeah. But so that was his first was tournament. That Preston? Yeah, it was his first tournament. And I remember watching him, and I'm thinking, he didn't look like he's going to miss. Mm. Yes. And every, he was going to be the next big thing, wasn't he? Yes. That was the one that yeah. we were all talking about. Yes. Like, Ding is now. Yes. And it didn't, for whatever reason, I don't know whether things off the table didn't work out for him or for whatever. But I don't think that ultimately, and I say it to his face if he was here, I don't, I don't think he fulfilled all of his potential. I yes. don't think he had the best time with the management company he was with, but we'll maybe move on from that to another number, Phil. Okay, I'll go for number 19. Well, one of the, one of the post-war world champions, John Pullman, of course, a commentator as well. Yeah, absolutely. John Pullman had got a wonderful voice for commentary. His commentary style was very different to now. I mean, very different to the modern style. He wouldn't know a statistic if it hit him in the face. Um, but he got a lovely turn of face, phrase, and obviously he knew the game inside out. Uh, and he was very witty also. Um, but I think it was actually the, the voice itself, which was so mm. melodic and deep. And I, I rated him as a commentator, actually. What, what year did he stop commentating? Well, it would have been when ITV stopped doing it, so yes. early 90s. Yeah. Because I got a feeling that I have commentated with him. Really? Yeah. Now, I'm fairly sure whether it was ITV or, or, or Channel 4, was it the Liverpool Victoria or something that they did in Derby? I'm fairly sure I've sat in a box with him. Okay. Right. And it, you are right, but his voice, that's all it needed, mm. wasn't it? And I, I think it gets a bit lost nowadays, isn't it? We sort of just talk for talk's sake sometimes, and sometimes the way you present it or convey it is far more than the words that just keep mm. on dribbling out but yeah he had it didn't he well the, the most famous line which was absolutely brilliant they're at the Yamaha organs tournament and the prize for the highest break was a Yamaha organ <laughs> I love how you remember the and I don't know what the high break prize was it was like I say it was a 137 and yeah. somebody's on a 115 with a brown on the table and his co-commentator said uh, well you know um, whoever it was could equal the, the high break here with a, with a 137 and then of course John left it for a few seconds and then went what do you do with half an organ? <laughs> <laughs> Laconic, I think the word is. Yeah. Uh, Mark, pick a number. Uh, seven. Number. <laughs> <laughs> this man is only on this for one reason. Tony Jones. Unbelievable. <laughs> of course, for those who don't know, yeah. beat um, Mark in the European yeah, Open final. Yeah, he, he did. What year was it, Dave? Because I've got 91? no recollection of stats at all. And it was, 91? Um, yeah. It was in Rotterdam, I remember that. And we were both in the final. We were both outsiders. We shouldn't have been there to be... <laughs> Totally but honest. you thought you were going to win, didn't you? But I was very, very. I'd not take. I got mentioned. I'd not take Stephen along the way. And then after that, I'll be honest with you. The draw. Stephen who's three? Stephen Henry. Very good, Phil. Yeah. And I think, and then, I don't think it was that difficult to be honest with you. Not, not being disrespectful, but I think I had Dino Kane and Cliff Thorpe, and when he wasn't at his best, somebody else I can't remember. But I get to the final. I think I can't lose this one. And it wasn't any disrespect to Tony, it was just I, I felt that I'm finally waking up after a few bad years. And I think I was 5-2, 5-3 up, I think. And then um, I think we went out for lunch and I didn't drink or anything like that, but just very relaxed and didn't really have a practice and came back. In all fairness, the night session, for the standard of snooker that was, he played really well. Yeah. And all of a sudden he's pulled me back and I thought, oh no, it's too, it is, you know when it's too late, your, your mindset is all completely wrong. And, and I think that would have been my little stepping board. You know that was a ticket to the masses. That was the, you've got a you've got a title under your belt. You can do it. And I didn't treat him with enough respect. I looked at him and thought he was quite an ungainly player, wasn't he? He, 
he didn't look he didn't look good mm. you know he, so I watched him and I thought no you're good but then all of a sudden he just he didn't miss and um, it was a lesson really that you know you shouldn't judge a book by his cover should you mm. but but you got to the final of the European Open the following year yeah. in Tonga and in Belgium that's it but you played Jimmy White there of course which is a, a different yeah. kettle of fish yeah but I've got mitigating circumstances for that one because I, that was an alright run in all fairness I've beaten Hendry again beat Parrot along the way I was playing some decent snooker and um, beat Mick Price my nemesis could never beat Mick and then um, in the final my friends had in those days you could only watch it via CFAX so the scores yeah, probably like for the long, best probably for some of the best we saw yeah. the matches <laughs> black and white and CFAX so they'd seen that I'd been Parrot on the Friday night or Saturday night whatever night it was and they jumped in that little Fiat Uno they had a little Fiat Uno five of them Windscreen wipers weren't working. Got on a ferry, drove down to Tongaren. I woke up in the morning, Sunday morning. Dad said, "Look, who's in the next room?" And the five of them were there. And I thought, well, "That's just amazing." You know what a lovely bunch of blokes. But little did I know that at the start, I've told Dave this story before. At the start of the, the event, the, the announcer, the MC, blah blah blah. You know, uh, Von, Mark, Johnson, Allen, they're all cheering like that. And then Jimmy's. Oh, but come the evening session, because I was six-two down after the first session, they'd all gone out on the lash on this Duval beer. Come the evening session, Von Mark Johnson and boo, go on Jimmy. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and that was it then. We never to reach a final again. But Tony Jones, underrated player. Tony Jones. Well, the, the extraordinary story about him, I'm sure it's true because I know the person who, who went, who, who was involved in this. He went, round, they went round because he lived in Chesterfield, which is near Sheffield. So Tony Jones is playing at the Crucible. Possibly for the first time, but but certainly he'd be around that time where where he'd be you, um, and so they've gone to pick him up. He's on in the morning with half ten or whatever. So they turn up about nine o'clock, pick him up, still in bed, and so they've called up Tony. What do you want? You you know you're playing, uh, you know in an hour. Where? At the Crucible <laughs> <laughs> in the World Championship. He just forgot he was in the World Championship. Yeah, true. <laughs> he was very quiet. I mean, I don't know. You know, I don't know what went on with his life off the table. You know, but he was very, but he was always really polite to yeah, me, and he yeah. was always, you know, he just kept himself to himself. I don't know, you know, but I, yeah, respect for him. Yeah, to win a ranking event, respect, isn't mm. it? And in that era, you know, to make his way into the top sixteen, which he did, yeah, you know, to do that, you've got to be able to play. He was a far better player than people realise. Mm. Yeah. Okay, Phil. Okay, I will go for number two. Well. A colleague of yours at ITV. We, we, he was going to be on. Well, he was on the last podcast, but only because he stumbled into it. Alan McManus. Right. Okay. Well, Alan McManus. What an absolute legend. Mm. Yeah. When you commentate with Alan, you realise what you already knew deep down that his depth of knowledge yeah. of the game is second to none. I mean, he, the analytical brain that man has got is extraordinary, isn't it? Really, he I, knows I every nuance, every shot, and nickname angles for an obvious yeah. reason. His geometrical appreciation of a snooker table is incredible. incredible. He, he even knew the date last week or the year last week. And then, no, this week. We're then talking about the steel block tables when they were swapped from BC to Riley. I couldn't remember that. I knew we changed yeah. them. I mean, I got memory like a sieve. We sat down at the English Open last week. We sat down for half an hour, 40 minutes, and he was reeling off matches we played as amateurs, mm. where we were in Ponte. Yes. I couldn't remember any of it. He knew the names I played, yeah. the people he played. It just, it was actually fun, and it was fascinating. Yeah. And his his idea of where snooker's going was really interesting as well. Because he was yes. talking to me about the kids that they don't they don't practice anymore. They're all on their iPads, their Xboxes, which is why he believes he's still maintaining this level now because no youngsters are coming through. And when I listened to him, I thought you're absolutely spot on. The amateur game's not there. Mm. You know, but he's so passionate about all of it, isn't he? He's, I felt embarrassed. I have nothing to give him back. I just sat there and listened. Yeah. You're right about the passion. The one thing I loved about Al McManus more than anything else, and I love lots about him, there was a, a question 
he was asked about what was his greatest win. And you know what he said? I thought it was the Masters or one of those two ranking events he won. No, the greatest win in his mind was the pro ticket match he won to become a professional. Oh, that yeah. opened the doors. That made my, that. my life. I mm. get that, because they were huge events. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't think people would remember them, but you'd, you'd go to some events and ultimately there'd be four, five, six hundred people trying to go for one of those eight spots. And it was, it was terrifying. You know, and you had to be in the top eight to qualify. That was, in the, that was in that proper system for me. You actually earned that ticket. And you, not the time when you all paid your, your thousand pound and your nan can turn up and bash a few balls around the table. But what he says there is, is spot on. It's often taken for granted, actually. You won the two ranking titles and the Masters, plus a, a, a couple of other, of other tournaments. But he was such a regular in semi-finals mm. and finals. In, in his heyday, it was it was frightening. One of the most consistent players you're ever likely to see. And I love the fact that when we were chatting last week, he said that he still loves practicing, and that, that says it all, mm. doesn't it? Well, he's, he's he's one of these. He's shown the game proper respect, and he's got the rewards because of that. And we saw him obviously at the Crucible. I mean, incredible this year, getting yeah. to the semis and just playing so well, and clearly clearly loving every minute of it. And uh, and let's hope he you know continues for some time. He's uh, one of the, the game's sort of proper pros for yeah. me. And yeah. he's become like a senior player now, hasn't yeah. he? Like, you can see young players look up to him, yeah. which is great. Well, other veterans, who we won't mention any names, were moaning like Billio about the qualification system for the World Championship this year. You know, if you're uh, basically at the side of the 16, you've got to play three qualifying matches and then almost immediately go to the Crucible. And what people were saying was at a certain age, you know, if you're in the 40s, you've got no chance through stamina. And Alan completely disproved that theory. Got through the three Absolutely. qualifying matches and then got to the semi-finals. Fantastic. If, if anything, it's better though, isn't it, Sure, yeah, yeah. You've always had to play three qualifying yeah. matches and if you're hot and you've just won the three, you want to carry straight on, don't you? You're not a month off. Well, it, I think it helped, Ding. The three did. matches yeah. gave him confidence back. And, uh, yeah, but we know you've got, you got Mooners and you've got Mooners. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there might be some on this list. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> go on. Crossed. Mark, your, your turn to pick I'll go number. for 11, please, Dave. 11 is Alison Fisher, former Women's World Champion. Went to play pool in America, of course. Now, my only recollection of Alison Fisher is... In Pontins, I mean, I knew Alison well. She was, and she, she had a fantastic cue action. She was almost like, at one stage, the female version of Steve Davis. Mm. The, it just, it was perfect. I think was she coached by Frank Cannon as well. I'm pretty so, sure yeah, she yeah. was. She, she was definitely. Technically, she was absolutely brilliant. But she, um, in Pontins, in the old days, you, you played upstairs. There's twenty odd tables, and, and the Pontins tournament was a big event. You win that, and people always took notice of you. And I remember she gave me a really good spanking on the table, that is. <laughs> just to clarify. <laughs> on, on the snooker yeah, yeah. On the snooker yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Upstairs in, in front of a lot of people. I think she may have beaten me 4 0. And obviously, in those days, you know, it wasn't as politically correct as it is nowadays. So, you know, rather than everybody <laughs> saying, well done, Alison, they're all looking at me going, you just lost to a girl. <laughs> but she played brilliantly, yeah. you know, and those. Let's say the pockets were really, really tight, and I probably didn't show enough respect. But she played better than me. She was a fantastic player. The highest break was 144. Right. Um, she won the World Mixed Doubles Championship with Steve Davis uh, on more than one occasion. I was in Hamburg to see her do it uh, on Screen Sport. I was commentating, and she made the decisive break in the decider. Couldn't agree with you more. I personally think she was the best woman player ever. Yes. Yeah. She got to about 192, I think, best ever in the world rankings, because she couldn't deal with the qualifiers at Blackpool, the, the, the cubicles where you watch by yeah. one man and a dog if you're lucky. But when she was in front of the cameras, she yeah. was fantastic. And what she did, you might not know this in, in America, the full extent of it, when she went over there, obviously it was about a, a year of acclimatisation to a new environment and also to the game itself, because although nine-ball pool, the pockets are bigger and all that kind of stuff, 
there's lots of little nuances to get used to. And once she got used to the game, she absolutely dominated the WPBA Tour, which is the Women's Professional Billiards Association Tour. And even this year, she won the WPBA Masters uh, in her mid-40s. Can't wow. speak highly enough no, of it. Is yeah. she still making a living from it out there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you something. The biggest regret, I think, Snooker had, in, or one of the biggest regrets Snooker had in the 90s, was not giving her a wild card to the Masters. It would have created massive interest. Because she was good enough. Yeah, absolutely. The first person she beat in a professional event, we've got to say this, was our good mate, Neil Folds, who was so devastated by it that he went back to his house and turned his phone off for two days. Uh (laughs) Well, she's a cousin of the Duchess of Doom, that's what they call her. Duchess of Doom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Well, She's a a nice lady. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Phil, is it your turn, Phil? No, it's Mark's turn. Um, I'll go for six. Cliff Wilson. The only the only recollection that I had of Cliff, he um, I used to practice in a club in Fishbourne School, Pot Black, and I was quite close to the Welsh players. Bristol's not far from South Wales, so I was going over there a lot with Tony Chappell and it was Wayne Jones, was it Mark yep. Bennett? And Cliff was an older generation back then. But I remember that they got Cliff over to an exhibition at Pot Black once, and he was uh, he was a bit of a lad. Mm. He was he was the old school, wasn't he? The jokes were dirty, but he was funny. <laughs> but he, you could tell that he applied his trade through the years of going around all the working men's clubs and and doing his thing. And I found him really really fun. I was only fifteen, mm. and then the next time I sort of crossed paths with him was at the uh, was in Newport once when the, the Welsh Open had finished, and I got a call to be on standby to do an exhibition, and it was with Cliff Wilson, and I was so young I didn't know what I was doing. I was mm. like a rabbit in headlights. Mm. But he held that audience for a good hour yeah. with his jokes and his trick shots, yeah. and I thought, what a funny man, sadly missed. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, three stories about Cliff, all short. Wembley Conference Centre, he's playing in the Masters. At the interval, after four frames, doesn't go back to his dressing room, just walks up three or four um, steps and goes and sits with the Chelsea pensioners who were watching the game for the entire mid-session interval right. and then came back into his chair. Classy move. Yeah. Classy move. That's one. The second was in a toilet at Prestatin. <laughs> He said slightly different story, this. So he's in there, you know, uh, answering the call of nature, presumably, and this bloke comes in and he went, You're all right, Cliff, you old has been. He went, no, Better to have been an has been than an ever will be. And I thought, What a great line. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there were a couple of swear words intermingled yeah. in that as well, yeah. Uh, and the third thing was um, just how phenomenally talented. The advert in snooker scene for exhibitions involving Cliff was, you've never seen anything like it. And at the time, they hadn't. Uh, He was from Tredegar originally, which is the same town as Ray Reardon, and they had a great rivalry. And then he stopped playing the game for many years. 15 years. Yeah, he was a shop steward in a steelworks. And then he came back and and did all this wonderful stuff in his 50s. Yeah, it was brilliant. Got in the top 16, didn't he? That's why he would have been at the Masters later on. Won the World Seniors Championship. He did, beating Eddie Charlton in the final. Mm. Charlton, Mr. Brown, I remember. That's a contrasting (laughs) style, isn't it? But he gave me one of my best... Are you sure it was the Brown, not the Blue? Yeah, it was Brown. (laughs) He gave me one of my best ever stories, Cliff Wilson. We were at the Preston Guildhall, and he's playing in the World Championship qualifiers. And uh, it's a two-session match, and he'd been staying at the, the Holiday Inn just across the way, across the car park there. Anyway, he came back, he'd got his suit and everything on, and went, you're all right, Cliff? He went, How'd he go? He got no false teeth in. Really? What, what, never yeah, what had happened, basically, he'd ordered a room-service sandwich in between sessions, <laughs> eaten the sandwich, <laughs> taken his teeth out, put it on the tray. The girl had come <laughs> in, took the tray. <laughs> Took the tray, <laughs> took the tray away with the teeth on. So he played the entire last session without his dentures. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, I don't, I'm not quite sure how we follow that, but we'll, <laughs> but we'll try. Yeah. Phil. Okay, I'll go for number eleven. We've had that. Okay, number twelve. 
Graham Miles. Well, another character, Graham Miles. I mean, I used to. I'll, I'll start here. This only a few years ago because he passed away quite recently. But, but maybe a year before that, I was. We had a thing in the magazine Past Masters in Snooker Centre, and um, I rang him up because he ran Samwell Snooker Centre, and just wanted to chat about his career. But he pretended not to be Graham Miles. He's like, oh, he's not here and all this, you know. And then he gave me. He said, but ring him on this number. He gave me this mobile number. Ring him on that, like, six o'clock, which I did. It wasn't his number. It was just some random... Yeah, just... It, like, and this went on for a couple of days until eventually I rang her back and I said, you know, is Graham there? And he, like, he put on a voice. I'll go and get him and then come back and, and done the interview like that. So a bit of an eccentric. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Graham... I got the interview in the end, but... <laughs> Graham was involved in one of the most extraordinary matches ever. He played Jim Medicroft in a, a tournament. I think it was in Ipswich. Anyway, regardless of where it was, they both turned up late. So it was two each at the interval, and neither of them had potted a ball. No. <laughs> yeah. But world championship runner-up in 1974 to Ray Reardon. Was Reardon. he really? Yeah, yeah. And he, he made his name by winning uh, Pod Black, I think, twice. Yeah, when it was like a big deal, because there were no tournaments really other than the world yeah. championship, and even that wouldn't have been on live every yeah. day. So Pod Black was the thing to win. Oh, I was, wow. I never, I never had any dealings with him, so yeah, I can't, I can't give you anything, Dave. Okay, that's, that's not like you. <laughs> <laughs> he, was one, he was one of the most extreme um, left-hand sighters yeah. you've ever seen in, in your life. I've seen him play, yeah. yeah. I, I saw him play an exhibition match once at a place called Corrybank Labour Club, which is quite close to me, uh, in the West Midlands, and the table I knew wasn't particularly good, because I played league matches on it myself, and he made a century, and after every two shots, just turned around and told a joke, and then got back to the break. It was just... Back then, the game to earn a living was totally different to what it is now. Well, absolutely, you had to play your trade, didn't you? you exactly. Had to go out and entertain, and you know that's that's the way you earn your money. And yeah. That's why they built up their, their personalities, didn't they? they yeah. could Then they could do that in a match and switch yes. off that thirty seconds. And back. Nowadays, we we haven't got that. that Towards the end of his career, he's playing at Blackpool at the Norbrook Castle Hotel in one of the booths in a qualifying match against Andrew Cairns from Blackpool and there's me one of Graham's mates who I also knew uh, the ref- Andrew Cairns Graham and the referee was Len Ganley and anyway it was at the time where there was a little bit of sort of controversy and confusion about the application of the misrule uh, anyway he, uh, the referee Len had called uh, Graham for a couple of misses and uh, you could see this mate of Graham's not, not too happy about it anyway Cairns was in this really really tough snooker he missed the reds and you know by a fraction and didn't leave anything on, um, and he, he, he didn't he didn't uh, he didn't um, you know call Andrew. So so the ref's gone foul. And this guy in the audience has stood up and gone and a miss. Brilliant. Right, Mark. Thirteen. Thirteen is Ray Edmonds, Grimsby legend, world amateur yeah, champion. I... Yeah, no, I, I know very well. I um, I could never work him out because there's almost two sides to Ray. You know, you got to be careful what you say. On on one side, when he was with other people, he could be a little bit condescending. I I find, and yet when we were on our own on a one on one, he'd be very nice and he's a very intelligent man, very knowledgeable. You know, I went through some really bad times. I can remember him saying to me, I said to him, "It can't get any worse, Ray." Then yeah, it can. <laughs> and I, thought, and I, thought, yeah. I looked at the rankings. I was down to six. And I thought well, it's a long list actually. He's right. And I can another occasion. I remember we all flew to Thailand. When you know, obviously, what happened in Thailand, and it's, it's, I get no pleasure out of it at all. But we we have picked up from a coach at the airport that everyone has picked up from a coach at the airport. And I, you know, I have a missus with me, so you know, I was, I was clean. But 
he sat on the I sat at the front with Shelley and he's to the left he looked at me and I said what are you doing here and I said what are you doing here I thought you cheeky so and so implying you yes. know and you haven't had, got one yeah and then we'd go out in the night time and he was very knowledgeable and very helpful and you know try this try that yeah. so there was two sides to him he so liked an argument that's not a, is not, that what that, it was well it's not a, that's not a secret to anyone in the stupid world he enjoyed arguing and was very good at it and would usually whatever your position was on anything he would take the opposite he's one of those contrarian really yeah. And he just enjoyed it, didn't he? Like liked an argument. Well, you know the Monty Python sketch where the guy goes in and pays money to have an argument for fifteen minutes. <laughs> That's right. Ray, Ray could have uh, made a nice few quid doing that. I mean, I got on great with him. I really liked him. Um, yeah, it was never nasty. It was never no, a nasty no, thing. He no. just enjoyed an argument. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got very different political views, and we used to have a few, you know, debates. Yeah. Let's put it that way. But I, I enjoy, always enjoyed his company. Must be remembered, a former world amateur champion, you know, uh, played at the Crucible, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Will Billy's champion? Yeah, and he was also, I think he was also the first ever winner of the pool competition on that iconic ITV series, Indoor League. Indoor League, yeah. Which was hosted by Fred Truman, and he won yeah. the pool event on that, yeah. Wow, yeah. And, and where is he now? He lives in Spain, he's yeah. retired, yeah. And of course, he has his snooker. I think his son runs his snooker club in Grimsby, doesn't he? That's right. And, and a very, very good commentator, I thought. No, I thought he had a mm. wonderful voice. Yeah. I, I don't. What happened with the. I, I don't. I just, I, came to, I just came don't to know. End. I don't oh. know. But uh, it's, it was a shame because he was a really good commentator. Yeah, he was. Mm. Yeah. Okay, we'll do two more. Phil, you go next. Okay, I'll do uh, number, s- number five. <laughs> Mick Price. Right, okay, well. I used to write, we, by the way we're doing this podcast here at the Rico Arena in Coventry uh, during the Champion of Champions and I used to write for the Coventry Evening Telegraph on Mick Price's matches. So every time he played I used to do 10 or 12 paragraphs for them and obviously if it was a bigger match you know, we'd, we'd do more and more and there were so many great stories of Mick, what a nice man he was. Oh, diamond. You know, um, just, just tremendous. Two things I'll never forget about him, obviously he was the man in the seat when Ronnie O'Sullivan made yeah. the 147. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing was, we were in the Grand Prix once, and he was having an absolutely fantastic season. He'd done so well in qualifiers. We were at the Grand Prix, and I'm expecting him to win this match. I forget who he was playing. And it was mid-October, you know, autumn just about descended on, on, the, on the country. And it was a really, really um, damp, horrible day. And as he walked from the hotel to the arena, the Hexagon in Reading, um, there was a downpour. Water got into his uh, water got into his um, his cue case, no. and the 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 tip of the cue got damp, oh. and basically made it impossible to play, and he lost the match five 0 oh, Yeah, what a so shot! There, yeah, yeah. But you are right, he was a, he was a he was actually my nemesis. You know that with certain people that you can't lose to, and certain people that you can't not lose to. I can beat him. I can And he he played. It'd be fair to say he was quite, he was here a couple of years ago. Someone couple of, great to see him. I haven't changed. Yeah. Looks exactly the same. And um. Because we used to take the mickey out. He used to look like Postman Pat, didn't he? That was the look we used to say. But he looks ungainly when he played, but what an incredible player. I think the only time I did beat him was when I got to the final in Tonquin. I beat him over there in Belgium. It was 5-4. It was an absolute howler. But I, he had it over on me. Really underrated player. When he, re- he retired from playing, and for a brief time, he, he was in the press room uh, doing his manager's website. And at the Crucible one year, he stood up at stage door, and this punter, you know, they, they sort of hang out there, they came up to him and they sort of studied him for a few seconds. And he, the guy said to him, Excuse me, didn't you used to be Mick Price? Um, yeah, yeah. And Mick's kind of gone, well, I sort of still am. 
But yeah. actually, he said about the, um, the thing with Ronnie. He, he, I remember he said, he said it's great. He said I live on as the answer to a trivial pursuit question. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he was witty, wasn't he? As well, he, he was very yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Self-deprecation, nice guy. Yeah. He, he, he once played an exhibition where there were sort of two tables next to each other, and they were all sort of round the one table. And he made a one-four-seven. You know, everybody sort of clapped. And then these four guys said, "Do you mind if we just have a doubles match?" And they played a doubles match on the other table while he was making, while he was carrying on the oh exhibition. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, we'll do one more then. Mark, eighteen. Ian McCulloch, Preston's finest. Semi-finest in the World Championship. He was very unlucky, wasn't he? Because he, he got in the top sixteen when Sean Murphy won the World Championship, and Sean, even though he won the World Championship, hadn't done enough to get in the top sixteen. But it was automatically seeded second or ranked second for every event, which meant that Ian. Well, as he put it, it was world number 16 and a half. He had to qualify and, and so on, which was unlucky because he'd spent a lot of time to get in the top 16. Yeah, and a very, very hard worker, both in terms of dedicated practice for tournaments and also to supplement his income. We've just talked about exhibitions well, with a, lot, yeah. other players. He was the one who kept it on, really. And what he did was he said to clubs, OK, I will want this fee, but if I don't make a century break during the evening, I won't get the fee at all. So it was a, a good deal wow. for them. But the amount of times he didn't do it, you could count on one hand. Seriously. And of course, you're going around clubs where the tables are of variable quality, to put it diplomatically. So to do that, I thought, was a, both enterprising and it just mm. underlined his skill. He, 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 yeah. worked, he did a few with Dennis. I think he learned from Dennis how to do, how to do all that, because obviously Dennis is like the ultimate kind of sort of showman in, in, in exhibitions. And, and I think Ian took that on board and realised that was another avenue rather than just tournament play. You could have that sort of string tip as well. I didn't really have much to do with it. He, I, he was a character, <coughs> wasn't he? I think, mm. you know, the times I've seen him, he, was all, he wasn't shy, was he? He beat Dottie at the Crucible, at Graham Dot, and, and sort of danced off the stage, didn't he? And, and I think Graham was a little bit annoyed. Yeah, yeah. I wish he would, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But did he... What happened to him in the end? Because he, he was right up there, wasn't he? He had shoulder problems, which mm. prevented him from playing, basically. He's no longer involved? N- uh, no, no. No, I think he might manage uh, some players. I think he might, is he involved with Ian Burns? Yeah, and I think he does, or he was doing a little bit one of the bookmakers, sort of their radio service... Yeah, he um, yeah. uh, was a shame. Like one of these players that, who, you know, sort of reached the heights. I mean, he got to a couple of ranking finals. Yes. But then, as you say, it's quite a common thing: shoulder or back trouble starts, and yes. then it's kind of there's no way back really. And he appears in a Hollywood movie, Ian McCulloch. Gosh, Mark, the, you I can't see Mark's face here. I hate to know the name. No. He said Hollywood. Garfield Two. You know Garfield the yeah, cat. This is Garfield Two: A Tale of Two Kitties. And basically, Garfield. A tale of two what? A tale of two kitties. Kitties. Right. So, yeah. So, so I just want to get that. Yeah. So Garfield basically comes over from America to 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 Britain, and he's in this stately home. I'm not going to give you, you the plot. Just to it. No, no. I'm, I'm, the reason I know this. Well, the reason is because you're in it. I'm in it as well. Yeah. That's the reason he's brought it up. Because <laughs> yeah. he's in it. So so in order to uh, so Garfield's lying on this on this bed in this stately home, and obviously the producers had to sort of find something <laughs> uniquely televisual to the UK. You know, to, to shoot to show that he was in the United Kingdom watching TV. So, the, the, the camera cuts to the TV, and there is Mark Williams playing Ian McCulloch with me commentating. No. Yeah, got no royalties. Oddly oh. enough, they never made Garfield three. No, <laughs> no idea why. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, uh, th- thank you, Mark and uh, Phil, and uh, we'll be back. We'll do it again sometime. Sports Social Podcast Network.